This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. By the way, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9 again tonight. So if you got your Bibles at home, if you don't, uh, you can give one of your kids a job, go get your Bible. Um, but uh, we're going to be in Romans 9. But Christmas uh, of this year, I was scrambling to try to get, figure out what I was going to give my wife uh, for her 50th birthday, which is kind of a big deal. And uh, and everything I was planning was terrible, and it was so. I finally stumbled into this idea. I cashed in points. I cashed in flight credits. I cashed in favors. I called Jennifer Orton, who is like the ninja of vacation. Those are some vacation and people. You got two extroverts married to each other. There's a party literally everywhere they go. And so, uh, so Jennifer uh, got on the phone and was working for hours. And I, I managed to find a a screaming deal at a. Um, uh, a resort in Mexico for a week to just go and, because that's my wife's idea of a, of a really, really awesome time, is just to literally sit on a beach and just and actually just kind of sit on a beach. Um, and so uh, Christmas morning was when I was going to tell her this and we're going to be leaving in a week. So it was a big deal. And I have somehow managed to keep a secret, which is not easy uh, with my wife. She always figures it out. And um, so I, she's getting ready. She's opening the present and she's whatever. And, and, and you know, when I get something exciting, I tend to do things like smile. Do, you know what I mean? Like I tend to go like, man, this is awesome. I get super stoked. My wife opens it up and she did what she, and by the way, I've been married 27 years. So this was not a surprise to me. Used to this would have hurt my feelings. Uh, but she, uh, well, she cried. Like quite a bit. And that always used to confuse me because cry, so crying feels like something you do when you're sad. Like my, our dog died this last week and we cried. That was a sad moment. But she has the exact same response to a Mexico surprise vacation as the dog dying. Like it's the same response, which was super confusing when I was younger. I've learned now that, hey, you know, you know, tears are not a bad thing. Tears are, you know, they're cleansing. But here's what I've learned, by the way, that not only is it's a different, um, how do I say this? It's, in my mind, it's the same response because it's water coming. It's like a salty discharge or whatever coming out of her face. Um, but it's not. There's joy tears. There's cutting onion tears. There's uh, the fan blowing in your eyes tears. And just a few years ago, somebody decided to look at teardrops under a microscope. Do you know about this? And it turns out that different tear actually looks different. So whatever, like the fan blowing on, on you tear looks different than the onion slicing tear looks different than you got hot pepper juice in your eyes tears. They are actually different. To us, it's water, but the molecules of these things, so the ones that I've got up here right now, the, the first one uh, is the, it's called the basal tear, um, just fan blowing in your eyes, and you get water coming out of your eyes, that's what that tear looks like under a microscope. The tear, the next one is actually the tears of cutting an onion. Um, and by the way, like, so there have been a couple moments in my marriage when I've come home, and she's got tears, and there's that moment of, okay, one of about 50 things could be happening here. Well, uh, she could be angry at me. 
Uh, she could be sad about something, or, or sometimes just literally for no particular reason at all. Uh, and then, or she could be cutting onions. And so this is the onion cutting one, and that's happened before. I've come in, I'm like, it's okay. Because especially earlier in our marriage, I don't, know, I don't know about you, Buford, but like when my wife would cry, I felt like I was just trying to put a fire out. I'm just like patting it, you know, like just <laughs> trying to, you know, make it stop. Um, that's onion cutting tears. Now the third one, and by the way, there are like dozens of these uh, that are all different. The third one is, this is, I swear, I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget it. And who knows how they, who they got to volunteer for this. This is the one of cutting an onion while putting pepper juice in your eyes while snorting uh, pepper juice uh, and eating a red pepper all at the same time. That's the tear, and it looks like basically like a tear vomit. Like it's just all in one giant mess of a tear coming out of it. It looks different. My point in even sharing this is that God is so creative, God is so amazing that he even knows that the tears that he gave us that are a gift, by the way, actually are such a gift that at the molecular level, that they actually tell a story, that they're, no, they're not the same. They are, they are at, the, at the core of what they are. And as I was reading this in Romans 9, we read last week, Paul was talking about his anguish over his fellow countrymen, over his brothers and sisters, over his family, his anguish and his sadness about this. He had cried for them. Like those tears that my wife cried at Mexico, over Mexico, Paul's crying tears about his brothers and sisters who don't know Christ. And if you've never wept for the lost, I don't say that in any sort of a shaming way at all. I say it in a way that if you haven't wept for the lost, it's because the gospel hasn't got to that part of your heart yet. Uh, not a shame thing at all, just to hey, open your heart up to the idea that there are people out there that are lost and that weeping for them at some point in your life and in your prayer is a part of your discipleship, a part of, you know, the, you're just weeping that they don't have what you have. You're weeping. And some of you, if your moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, you've done this for your own children. You've done this for your families. You've done this for your parents, your brothers and sisters. But that's what Paul was saying. And those tears spoke to him. And, and Part of his tears was asking the question, answering the question to the Romans that he's writing to the church in Rome, which is, is God fair? Is God righteous? Remember we talked about that last week, the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God. That's what Romans 9 is. And in Romans 9, he actually asks three questions that honestly are questions most people ask even today. He asked the question, about is God unjust? Like, what shall we say? I think it's verse 14. Is God unjust? And the, and the answer is, of course, no. And he, he sets out the case for that, but that's a question. Why are they saved and why am I not? Like, and if you're Paul, like even, Paul was a murderer. Paul did terrible things. And he's asking the question, is God unjust? Because the Romans, the church at Rome might have that same question. He asked him that, the second question, which is, then why does God still blame us? Who's able to resist his will? That's verse 19. And that question is about God choosing this person and not this person. He, he's talking about Pharaoh and, and, and sovereignty of God and is God unjust? Because how is it fair that, again, Paul, how is it fair? I'm the murderer I'm the guy that's done terrible things. How is it fair that I'm the one that is in, in relationship with Christ and this person over here that's supposedly a good person is not? That's a question he asks. And then the third one, which is, by the way, a great question that we should always ask whenever we hear the word of God delivered, whenever we're in the word of God at all, which is, what shall we say then? Like, another way of saying it is, well, so what? 
And he answers these in chapter nine. And he starts with last week with the righteousness. And if you weren't here, go back and listen to it. Faithfulness. But this week he goes to the justice of God and the grace of God and then the gospel of God. And it answers those three questions. And I want to just, in the moments we have this morning, answer those in the way that Paul, I'm not making up these, I'm going to tell you this is what Paul and how Paul answered these. And so he says, is God unjust, right? And justice is a question that we all have when we think about God. Is he just? How is it just? And in our modern system, uh, when you hear about people that have been uh, inappropriately or uh, accused, ha- have been in prison uh, for years for crimes they didn't commit, what you know is that justice in our world is imperfect. It just is. Uh, if you've never read a book called Just Mercy, I, I would highly recommend it. Uh, it's just a biography of a, of a man that was uh, falsely accused. It's, in our fallen world, our justice will always be imperfect. It's just the world we live in. doesn't mean we stop. It doesn't mean we don't try. Romans 13, Paul's actually going to talk about the justice system in Rome. It's what we had. It's the best we had to work with. So it's, it's what it is. But the question is here, not is, is our fallen world justice right? The question here is, is God's justice right? And his response, this is his rebuttal to this question. And it is not, I mean, when you first read it, you think this is like the equivalent of the telling your five-year-old, well, because I said so. Right? And at some point, I don't know if you ever had your mom say that to you or not, it's because at some point we're done with this conversation, especially when it's two, right? When you're someone is two years old, that's the equivalent of negotiating with a terrorist. Like at some point, you are not arguing in good faith. We are not getting anywhere here. We, you know, I do not negotiate with terrorists. I do not pay ransom to terrorists. And at two years old, at some point, you're just going to have to trust that your daddy you know, has your best interests in mind. And that's not quite as simple as Paul says it, but it is almost that because he's, he's, here's, his, here's his answer to that. Is God just? And is God, you know, he says it right here in verse 20. Here's how we know. You as a human being, you, who are you to talk back to God? Verse 20. What shall we say to that guy that formed us, the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Now, if you're a secular humanist and you don't believe in God, this answer doesn't necessarily make much sense to you. But for those of us who believe that God created us, that God created our bodies, that he designed us fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't know if you know this or not, but inside of your bodies right now, your lungs, okay, that's something we've heard a lot about the last year of this. If you were to smooth out your lungs, I don't know why anybody would do this, but if you got a rolling pin out of the cupboard and took your dad's lungs and rolled them out in the parking lot, it would cover the size of a tennis court. That's how much lung you got in there. More than that, if you, uh, wait a minute, the airways, this is actually, I forgot about this one, and the airways within them. Okay, so I'm just talking about the lungs themselves. You take the airways out of them and you tie them together, it would stretch from coast to coast 
Inside your body is enough of those little things, you just string them together from coast to coast. The length of your blood vessels, stretched out, tied together, would take you two and a half times around the earth. But the most remarkable part, and this is something I... I'm, I'm completely fascinated by that your DNA, we've heard a lot this past year about mRNA, DNA. One of the reasons why this mRNA stuff is so tricky is that we're, we're not just trying to kill a virus. We're literally tweaking the dial a little bit on something that makes us who we are. This is a, a, a fascinating, I know controversial, but to call it a vaccine is a little bit of a stretch. That we're tweaking with the RNA of a, of a body that's like creates proteins, but the DNA part of our body, you have, listen to this, a meter of it packed into every cell in your body. And if you formed all the DNA into your body into a single strand, listen to this, it would stretch 10 billion miles to beyond Pluto from Earth, inside of your body. There's a book um, that I have loved. Uh, Donna Henderson and I have, have read this together. Uh, my, one of my favorite authors is this guy named Bill Bryson, and he wrote a, body, uh, a book called The Body, A Guide for Occupants. Bill is an, uh, is an agnostic at best, secular humanist for sure. And he wrote this about the human body. It's often likened to a machine. That's what Elon Musk says. If we just tap some wires in there, we can make it like a machine. But it's so much more than that. It works 24 hours a day for decades without, for the most part, needing regular servicing or the installation of spare parts. It runs on water and a few organic compounds. It's soft and rather lovely, is accommodatingly mobile and pliant, pre-produces itself with enthusiasm. You can see why I love this guy as a writer. Makes jokes, feels affection, appreciates a red sunset and a cooling breeze. How many machines do you know that can do any of that? There is no question about it. You are truly a wonder. When Paul said, or David said in the Psalm 130, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It was true. It still is. And what Paul was saying to the best of their understanding of the body, of who you are, who am I to say as a clay vessel, right, to the potter, why did you make me like this? If, put it differently, if the God of the universe, okay, can make a body this complex and this infinite. If you believe that God ordered your body to be this complex and infinite, can you also believe that he could order your steps? We could get really, really caught up in the predestination versus free will. You can get super caught up in the, the theological debate. But at the end of the day, if God could do this with your body, he ordered it in a way that is so complex that no scientist, no amount of money can recreate it. He could order your steps. We can trust that he is able to do that. And trusting him to order our steps is what he says here, is what Paul is saying. Uh, verse 25, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. He was saying to the Jewish people who were like, how is this fair that these these Gentiles are getting what we worked so hard for. How is it fair that that's happening? And he's saying, look, he's going to order your steps. Who, are, who am I to say to God, why would you choose Gentiles and Jews? Who am I as a, as a human to say anything in my life right now? God, why, 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 why? Who am I to say that? 
can I rest in the fact that he has called me not only my people, but he has called me his loved one. And if that's true, the Lord, Psalm 37, 23, directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of your life. Proverbs 16, 9, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. If he can determine your lungs to work when you wake up today and your eyes to work and we can't, I can trust that he's got our best interests in mind. And so when you're looking at this debate here that Paul is trying to make about the Jewish people and the Gentile people, which is a, a debate still to this day of is God just or unjust that he created these people and he chose me and he didn't choose me. And all I know is that this God that is so complex, that is so amazing, that I can trust that he's going to be good and he's going to be amazing with it. And he doesn't stop there because he goes on to talk about not just God's justice based on, hey, you know, God is pretty smart and we can trust him. He then moves into, here's why we can trust him. And that's in verses 30, 31, 32, when he talks about the grace of God, something you have heard, you have seen, you have read, you have read, you've talked about. But man, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm just barely beginning to understand and grasp what it means. Because what he's saying here, what shall we say then, verse 30, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness by faith. He's basically saying, be careful what you wish for. Because in verse 30, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness by faith. But he goes on to talk about the people of Israel, verse 31, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. The, the, the Jews, the Israeli people, the Jewish people desired, they wished for the ability to receive God's blessings, God's acceptance, salvation by how good they did. And he's saying, be careful what you wish for. Because what they got, again, what is that old saying? Be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. He says in verse 32, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They, why not? Because it doesn't work. It's pretty simple. They worked really, really, really hard. And what was the result of their wish? What did they get that they should have been careful what they wished for? They got Pharisees. They got Sadducees. They got religion. They got abuse. They got resentment. And you know what they didn't get? Salvation. Because all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And I can remember, I'm old enough to remember, I don't know, I'm, I'm in this room maybe, I'm old enough to remember in the 80s when we had like our Christian version of saved by works. We didn't call it that. But it was, uh, we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't hang out with girls who do. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and it was, uh, we had to have our hair cut above our collars. Uh, we had to wear a tie to Bible, to, literally to Bible college. Can you imagine me? I swear I'm not making this up. I had to wear a tie every day. We, we would go into Bible school with our hair cut above our collars with a picture of Jesus behind us on the wall with long hair, and nobody thought anything about it. 
But it became this whole thing about rules and regulations and policies and procedures. And we were in a place then when if somebody prayed and they didn't get healed, then we must have had sin in our lives. I, something's gone wrong here. I must be doing something wrong. I must need to work harder so that God will love me better and then I can get what I've asked for. God's blessings, God's salvation by works is exhausting if we do it that way. And it doesn't work. In the secular humanist world we live in right now, we're basically getting this without God. This whole thing that's happening in our cancel culture world is a nebulous set of rules and regulations and policies and procedures. So in the, in the 2000s and the 20,000s, what are we calling these now? We're back in the 1900s, but we're now in the 20,000s maybe? Let's say we're in the 20,000s. In the 20,000s, now it's not like a bunch of religious people telling us religious things. It's a bunch of secular people telling us religious things. Like if you listen to comedians in interviews who lived through the 80s and 90s, they will say some version of this feels just like it was in the 80s except for now it's not uh, hardcore uh, religious people coming after us, it's hardcore progressive people coming after us. And the problem, they've said this out loud, is that, and for them the problem is the rules just keep changing. Like what we could say 10 years ago, we can't say today. Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. If you wish to be in a world where if I'm doing this right and doing it right enough and that's the way that I'm, and we would say save, but that's the way that I feel purpose and meaning and that's the, in the secular mindset, you're going to find yourself right back in a world that you can't, you can't do it. And so when he talks about a salvation by faith, it's because it's the only way it would ever happen. When Jesus came and died in my place, it wasn't just an option of about a hundred of them. It was the only option. I love it when we talk to Muslims. Uh, what's happening right now when we're out there loving them and we're giving them uh, blankets and food. But by the way, if we give them just blankets and food and we leave their souls we just leave somebody with warm feet headed to hell, and that's not what we're doing. And they see the love, and they see the work, and that, and they, they feel Jesus in it. And, but when you talk to a good Muslim, and you start explaining grace to them, you start saying, this is what it is, that you can't earn your way into heaven, that Jesus came for you. You know when you're getting warm because they get angry. They get angry because it's not fair. I've done all this work, I've done all this, and how could, that's not fair, that's not fair. And the answer is, is, it's not fair. Because fair, the only thing that's fair will end up with you not making it into eternity with Jesus. If it's set up as fair, you don't get to. Which is why even here, Paul doesn't even focus on elect versus non-elect, that whole thing we get all caught up in. He just says, by faith, by faith, by faith. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God has your best interest in mind? Do you believe that Jesus did this? Do you believe, if you can believe that and hold on to that, 
that is the way that you receive not just this side of heaven, the sozo, but on the other side as well. It's only by grace. It'll never be by works because if it's by works, we don't get there. And the last thing that I want to share with you is this just gospel moment in it all because if I go by grace, the thing that this does in the gospel moment, the thing that grace does that no amount of works can do, the thing that grace does that no amount of of me trying to fit in with the crew is it takes the shame away from me. He says in verse 32, it's written, I lay a stone in Zion, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rod that makes them fall, a rock that makes them fall. And the one who, listen, the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. You see, if I'm here about working my way in, if I'm here trying to tell my people, my brothers, my sisters, myself, that I'm only going to work my way in, that I'm going to fail, and the thing that happens when you fail, you know it, is you feel shame. It's it, uh, The things that I've done, that you've done, there's a shame that's attached to it, and he's saying here that those who believe in him will not be put to shame. And by the way, in the world that we're in right now, the, the, the literally the, high, the elite education systems in Harvard and Stanford and MIT are making a case to bring quote bring back shame as a tool of social justice. Uh, bring back the social the, the 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 mobs the bring back the shaming people the scarlet letters because that's an effective tool to change people. It's not. It's an effective tool to beat people down. It's an effective tool to control people, but it is not effective to change people. Even Brene Brown, who I wouldn't necessarily quote because theologically speaking, she's about as loose as cream corn. But she would say this to her social justice warrior friends. For me, I think shame is a tool of oppression. Humiliation, berating are tools of hurt. They're not going to be tools of justice. I do not think shame is a social justice tool. If you want to use it as a social justice tool, that's great, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to participate with you because shame doesn't just change the person who is the target of the shame. Shame changes the person who uses it against other people. Using shame as a tool doesn't just change the person that you're trying to shame, it changes you as well. And that's why when Jesus, Hebrews 12, says that when he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him, he did it despising, not the holes that were going to be punched in his hand, that's what I would be despising. Like, I'm not a big fan of someone driving a nail through my ankle. I would despise that. But he went there despising the shame Because weaponized shame started in the garden, continues to this day. And so when you see the idea now that if we can just shame people into behavioral change, you're not, you're just shaming them into the closet. You're shaming them into hiding. You're shaming them into darkness. And it is not the gospel. The gospel is shame off you, not shame on you. And the beauty of what Paul has said here in Romans 9 is really just this. God is just, we can trust him. He's wired together your body in ways that you couldn't possibly understand. God is right, he is righteous, he has always, always been right. And God is love because only a God that would love you would live in the way that he would become one of us to die for us. That's how we know we can trust 
him. And, and what the gospel does to us then, the understanding of that, and I hope at home, if you're hearing this, maybe there's snow outside your window, I don't know. But I hope that what you're hearing me say this morning is that the gospel has come to remove the shame from you, not to put more shame on you. And the only way that that, the only way is not you working your way to it, but is to believe, to, to receive, to, to, he says, whoever believes will not be put to shame. Doesn't mean there's not gonna be some godly sorrow. Second Corinthians 7 says that godly sorrow leads right, to repentance, that there's, it leaves no regret, it doesn't lead to death. That's, by the way, what, what the worldly, if your sorrow is leading you to death, if it's leading you to destruction and to shame, that's not godly sorrow. But there is such a thing as a godly sorrow for you to recognize that your own sin was there, to, to, but it's not gonna lead you to shame because that's not the gospel. The tears that I showed you a little bit ago, there's one more that I wanna show you, which is the tears of Sadness, the tears of hurt, the tears of anguish. Do you recognize anything that looks familiar in those molecules? The God of the universe that could string your DNA from here to Pluto made sure to put in your side of the, your tears of sadness a molecule that looks like a cross, because in that cross is where your tears will be wiped away. I believe in eternity that of all the tears that we may still see there, he says he's gonna wipe your tears away, which means there will be tears there. The tears with the cross will not be there anymore because those are tears of sadness and of regret and of shame, and those will be wiped away because of the cross, and just as God's little God nod to you, he put a cross right in the middle of it to remind you, just to prove. I hope that helps. I hope that you can walk out today. I hope that you can head to the kitchen this morning in your homes with the reminder that God loves you so much that he wired it literally into your DNA, that he wired it literally into your teardrops. The gospel is just permeates throughout who you are. In Romans 9, the questions of is God justice, is of God right, is he loving all the, the answer is unequivocally yes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, those maybe who've not trusted in you, Lord, I pray that today, maybe for the first time, that they will trust in you, that they will believe on you and allow those tears of anguish, of regrets, of sadness to wash away and to leave them not with death, but with life, the godly sorrow inside of them. I pray, Lord, that your spirit is moving in our hearts and our homes and, and that, Lord, as we move into these weeks and months ahead in a world that seems out of control, could we trust that you are sovereign, that you are on the move. Lord, show us our part to play. Show us how we respond to you and rest in the fact that you have not fallen off the throne, that you are still there. And it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen.